Last time we talked about the church at Ephesus. We've been through the seven churches and looking at the historical eras, and now we're going through looking at each one and the spiritual application of the message. And in the church of Ephesus, we saw a pattern. We saw that these letters follow a certain sequence. They go to, from, commendation, exhortation, consequence, reward. They all kind of follow that with some exceptions. So in Ephesus, we saw it says to the church of Ephesus, from the one who picks his witnesses. I hold and my messengers. I hold the, hold the stars and the lampstands in my hand. Commendation, you're doing an awesome job standing for the truth. You, you sort out false teachers. You don't, you don't allow false witness. You stand for the truth. That's awesome. Great, great that you're doing that. Exhortation, I want my witnesses to be not only people that stand for truth, but also love. It's two kinds of love I care about. Love me, God's speaking. Love me, which means I want you to care about what I want more than what you want or what other people want. And just being right isn't enough. I want you to care about other people. Love others. That's what I care about. And if you don't, I'm going to take your witness away. That's the consequence. I don't need a witness that's just truth. Being right leads to being right. Self-righteousness. The purpose of being right is to benefit others. If you're not going to do that, I'm not going to have you as my witness. Then he adds, but I really like that you stand for truth. Okay, I'm not telling you not to stand for truth. That's awesome. I want both. And then he says to the overcomer, I will give to either the tree of life. So the benefit or the reward of standing for truth in love is this joy of life, the fellowship of life. So today we come to Smyrna, and he follows this same pattern. And what I'm going to do is go through that pattern with you the way I kind of see it as an overview, and then we'll get into the text. To the angel in Smyrna. So to Smyrna, Smyrna means is derived from the word myrrh, so it's the place of bitterness. To this place of bitterness from the one who writes history, has everything under control, and who was dead and came to life. The exhortation is, you are doing great persevering in a really, really difficult time. I know things are hard. I know things are tough. And I commend you for hanging in there. And then the exhortation isn't, but I have something against you. The exhortation is, just keep hanging on. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Just keep hanging on. And then the reward is, if you're faithful unto death, I'll give you a crown of life. And then he says to the overcomer, you won't be hurt by something. And I'm going to propose what he's saying here is you won't be hurt when your deeds are judged. Because your faith has already been refined and proved in this life. And if you do it in this life, when you come before the judgment seat of Christ, it's already done. You've already been proven. And I'll show you where I come up with that. So let me just read it now, and then we'll go through bit by bit. To the angel or the messenger of the church of Smyrna write, These things say as the first and last, who was dead, came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So let's go through it. Angel in the church of Smyrna, right? These things says the first and last. Now this first and last, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, runs all through this book. And we saw in the introduction to Revelation that the kind of the overarching theme of the book is Jesus is writing to his servants to show his servants how to be great witnesses, martyreo, those who give a witness. And he wants us to make being a good witness such a priority that we're willing to lay our life down for it. Jesus here is the one who's dead and come to life. He was dead. He came to life. What does he want us to do here? Lay down our life so that we can be lifted up. So I'm the one that's first and last. I've got all this under control. What we're going to see as we go through Revelation is a lot of bad stuff is coming. A lot of difficult days are ahead. God's already got these days ordered. What He has in mind for us is to endure so that we can be witnesses. And He's going to tell us the extent to which that's in our best interest, even though it's hard to hear. None of us want to go through difficulty. But it is part of life. And what we're going to see here is it's a part of life that brings us great riches. So I was dead and came to life. You're going to have an opportunity to do the same. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Now, we did a whole series in here, How to Be Rich. One of the things that we leveraged off of in that series was what we're going to see in the seventh church. And in the seventh church, the church to Laodicea, Jesus says, buy from me all the gold you want. You can have as much gold as you want. And the way you get that gold is, when I knock, hear my voice and open the door. And then I will come in and we will fellowship. And you can listen to me. And you can know me. And that's infinite riches. And when we go through persecution for the sake of the Lord... I think what he's promising here is, not only in the days to come, but he's promising us his presence. And there's no riches that material wealth can give that even come close to the riches we have when we walk in fellowship with God in that sense. There's lots and lots of people in the world that have a lot of material stuff, but no relationships and they're miserable. Relationships of people that love us is what brings joy in life. And nobody can love like Jesus can love. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Probably what's happening here is the Jews are persecuting these believers. We saw that all through Paul's writings. That he'll go to a city, he'll go to the synagogue, start making great progress and then the Jews organize and go get him stoned or beaten or arrested or run him out of the city or something like that. It's interesting that he says they're a synagogue of Satan. Anybody that opposes the gospel is doing the will of Satan. And it's interesting because he says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. It's hard enough to suffer when you're suffering. It's even worse when you know suffering's coming. (laughs) One of the things I learned when we raised David, who was by far our most difficult child by a factor of (laughs) ten, one of the things I learned is that spanking didn't do any good. Because he he just didn't, it didn't didn't hurt. He didn't didn't care. 
It was, it was always worth it to him. Whatever it was that he did was worth it to him. Unless he had to wait for it. That drove him crazy. So what I learned is to say, go to your room, I'll be in there a little bit. And by the time I got there, it didn't matter. I could just barely touch him and it was an agony because he had to wait for it. He couldn't stand waiting for it. Well, he's telling him, look, you're about to be thrown into prison. It's, this is difficult. Difficult days are coming. And what, and what I want you to do is understand what that's about. Now, it's interesting here that it says the devil's going to throw some of you into prison. Now, this is a time when these seven churches are all on the western coast of, of uh, Turkey. And these were Greek cities that then became Roman cities. And this Turkey then was a Roman province called Asia. So... If somebody's going to throw them into prison, it's going to be a Roman soldier at the behest of a Roman governor. And Jesus says, that's Satan throwing you into prison. There's a lot of interesting implications there, don't you think? Because what that means is that Satan is actually the one controlling the Roman government at that point in time. Now this goes back to a point we made when we first set this up. And we're going to see this all through Revelation. The connection between what's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. You know, Jesus says, I've got my lampstands up here. And I'm going to take your lampstand out. And the clear implication is to Ephesus, if I take my lampstand out in heaven, then your witness is gone on earth. We looked at Daniel. Daniel asked for clarity about what does this vision mean. And an angel was sent to tell him and got held up for 21 days. And when he finally gets to Daniel, he says, Hey, sorry I'm late. When you asked, I was dispatched, but I got hung up by the prince of Persia. Daniel worked for the prince of Persia. That was a man. But the angel got held up by an angel. That was the prince of Persia. There's a real connection between what's going on in heaven and what's going on on earth. We're going to see this over and over again. We're going to see these strange things happen in heaven and when it happens in heaven, a seal's open and then all of a sudden stuff breaks out on earth. Satan is going to throw them into prison. But wasn't Satan already defeated at this point? Wasn't Satan already displaced by the new ruler of the world? He was. Jesus has already beaten Satan. This is kind of like a lame duck president. He's already lost his election. But the new, the new president hadn't been inaugurated yet. And he's getting stuff done in between. But Jesus allows this to take place. And it's interesting too, in Romans 13, we know God appoints the authorities. But that's because he's first and last. This kind of reminds me of Job. Satan comes into the presence of God in heaven and says, and, and God brings up and says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's making you look really bad. And Satan says, yeah, well, it's just a deal, man. You, you give him everything. What? Who wouldn't, who wouldn't take that deal? You make him all rich and everything, and all he's got to do is just kind of worship you. What's the big deal about that? Take away all his goods, he'll curse you. And God says, all right, well, go ahead. Just don't, don't hurt his person. And then after Satan comes back, God brings it up again and says, hey, see, Job didn't fold like he said he was going to. Now you're looking really bad. And in the course of saying that, God says, although you incited me to ruin him. See, God said, I'll give permission, even though Satan did all the dirty work. Same kind of thing here. I'm letting this happen to you. 
I'm letting this happen to you. Satan is going to administer it. But i got something really good in mind for you. So hang in there. Don't be afraid. Satan is going to be let loose. Satan's at work. Don't fear. Satan's at work in the world today, have you noticed? He's on the loose. He's in control of a lot of governments. And those governments are doing bad things. Don't be afraid is the message. Even though we may suffer as a result. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? That you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. It's interesting, ten days. What's about ten days? A ten day sentence I can handle. I don't think I don't think this means ten literal days. What he's trying to say in here is you're going to be tested until that time is over. But it's a specific amount of time. The first and the last. God has already written it out. He's already scheduled it out. You're going to have a specific amount of time. Now why ten days? It's interesting. If you look up the phrase ten days, you find it two different places. If you want to look, you can. Daniel 1, 12. Daniel comes up and says, Hey, can you give me a time of testing? That's ten days. Remember what the test was? The vegetables, yeah. Will you let me have vegetables and water instead of meat sacrificed to idols, stuff that would defile us? Give us ten days. And at the completion of ten days, then we'll see. And it appears that a ten-day trial is considered a time of complete complete trial. That's, That's interesting, isn't it? You also see in Jeremiah 42.7 that Jeremiah has petitioned to God and God answers 10 days later. It's like, I'm going to answer you, but I want you to wait for 10 days. The implication here seems to be 10 days is a complete time. But look at this, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. That sounds a lot like something we're very familiar with, which is James chapter 1. James chapter 1, let's go there. In James chapter 1, in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. In the word, root word here, trials, same word as in Revelation 2. Same root word. Knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. And if we look down in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, trials, the same root word here as in Revelation 2. When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. It's the same exact message. I'm going to send you trials. I'm going to send you temptation. When you endure it, you're going to get the crown of life. Now, let's look at this, James chapter 1, because I think it expands on what we're being told here in Revelation 2. In verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, there's nothing joyful about being thrown in prison. There's nothing joyful about being persecuted. The circumstances don't bring joy. But he says here, count it joy. Decide that this is good for me. And in Revelation, we're told why it's good, and James, we're told why it's good, why we can make that decision. And it tells us right here in verse 3, the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience. 
and lets patience have its perfect work that you be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, what God wants us to do is take advantage of this one opportunity we have in our existence to know God by faith. The one opportunity we have in all our existence to live by faith. There'll come a time when we die that we'll know God by sight. And it will be wonderful. But the angels have known God by sight for a long, long time. And they spend a lot of their time trying to understand what we're getting to understand, which is to know God by faith. Because they're never going to get to know that. And who's going to rule the angels? The overcomers are going to rule the angels. Even though there's no indication that we're going to be more powerful than the angels. But there's something about this knowing God by faith that bumps us up to a level that goes above the angels. And and 1 Peter says they're looking down like an archaeologist would study an, an, an object, trying to understand what we are getting to understand. And that faith, having our faith perfected, is so amazingly valuable that when we're suffering, we should say, boy, this is awesome. This is really great for me. I'm going to count this as joy because it's such a fantastic opportunity. Now, James goes on and says, that's not that easy to do. It's not that easy to believe. So if you need help believing that's true, what do you do in verse 6? Ask for wisdom. And God will give you the perspective to see this if you'll ask without doubting. Because we can really believe this. We can believe what he's telling us in these letters to the churches if we'll ask God, you know, help me see that what I do now I can count as joy because of what it's laying up for me. And then James gives us two different kinds of circumstances. In verse 9, there's the lowly circumstance. Can't get much lower than getting thrown in prison for doing what's right. You can't get much lower than being persecuted for doing what's right. That's pretty low circumstances. And in low circumstances, what we're supposed to do is glory and what an exalted place we are. Which is exactly what Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna. You're in an amazing place. Just hang on and I'm going to give you this incredible crown of life and something else that we'll talk about. I'm going to give you an amazing crown of life and I'm going to help you avoid something that you don't want anything to do with. The other kind of circumstance is the circumstance we're going to see in Laodicea. The circumstance of plenty, which is actually the more difficult one to overcome. Because when we have everything, when we're rich, as Americans are, you know, if you're an average American, you're in the upper 1% of income earners in the world today, which means you're probably the upper half percent of income earners in all of human history, which means we're rich beyond wildest imagination of almost everyone who's ever lived. And it's hard to think of ourselves as needy when we have so much. But that's what we need to do. Verse 11. No sooner is the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers its grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So when we have plenty, it's important to remember this is passing. Don't put my faith in plenty. Don't put my faith in great circumstances. And then in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures trials and temptation. This same root word. For when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. So being an overcomer is being approved. Being an overcomer is saying, your life was the kind of life I approve of. Now, none of this has anything to 
do with being accepted. None of this has anything to do with being born again. Acceptance is a gift that has nothing to do with performance. Nothing whatsoever. We believe, we're born, we're children. And God loves His children. But God is not a five-year-old soccer God. Not everyone gets a trophy just for participation. He approves the kind of behavior that is good for us and disapproves the kind of behavior that's not good for us because He's a perfect parent. When we are approved, He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. If we love Him, we'll do what He asks us to do. And then he says something very interesting. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Now this is interesting because he says, I'm sending you these circumstances. I am sending them. And then he turns around and says, you're not tempted by me. Keep reading and we'll understand what he's telling us here. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Ah. Nor does him himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, so now we've got a pregnancy analogy here. First is conception. It gives birth to sin. So we start by conceiving. We think the thought. And then the thought becomes a child. And then we birth the child. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So these circumstances themselves do not cause us to fall. What causes us to fall is when we refuse to receive the circumstances with faith. And instead, we evaluate the circumstances with our desires. This is a real challenge. Who desires to be uncomfortable? Who desires to lose that which makes us comfortable in favor of that which makes us uncomfortable? Who desires to invest in something that causes us loss now for gain later? That's not normal human behavior, which is why it takes faith. And he tells us in Revelation 2, do not fear. Where does fear come from? Well, it comes from within us, doesn't it? And what fear is, is looking at a circumstance and saying, I don't want that and I'm going to try to control that from happening. And what God is telling us here is, when the circumstance comes, just embrace it. And if you'll embrace it and trust me that I have things under control, I am the first and the last. If you will embrace that circumstance, I've got an amazing reward for you. That is the kind of life I approve of. Just hang in there when you're tested. The crown of life is interesting. This notion of crowns is something that's all through the Scripture, but it's not in the seven churches as much as I would have expected. The Greek word here is Stephanos. James 1.12, Stephanos. Roman Revelation 2, Stephanos of life. Jesus wore a Stephanos of suffering, crown of thorns. The world gives a crown to those of us willing to walk in faith. If we walk in obedience, we should expect a crown of thorns from the world. Along with that crown of thorns came mocking. But if we endure the mocking, if we endure the thorns, we get the crown of life. 1 Corinthians 9 says we're seeking to achieve a crown that's incorruptible. And here the picture is a wreath for an Olympic champion who would take some leaves of some tree or something and put it on the champion. And Paul says, you know, those leaves, they wither. 
those leaves turn into dust. But the crown that God's going to give us will never fade. Here's the idea. We went to the Baseball Hall of Fame one time, Cooperstown, New York. It's really cool. I, I really like baseball. I'm fascinated by it. And I got to see Babe Ruth's plaque there, Joe DiMaggio. It was really neat. And then I started looking at everybody else's plaque. No idea who any of those people were. They're in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I really like baseball. I never heard of most of these people. They'd faded away. Such is life. You fade out of people's memory. The Olympic champions of yesterday that were on the Wheaties box yesterday, nobody, nobody can say their names anymore. A few of them maybe have changed their names. <laughs> I knew all of you were thinking that. But Paul says, we're, we're, we're going to get a crown where the memory never fades. Because we're an Olympic champion. We're approved by the judge. Philippians 4.1 says... Our crown will be full of people. The people that we bless in this life will be our crown. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? 2 Timothy 4 says we'll get a, there'll be a crown of righteousness for those who look forward to Jesus' returning. You know, if you were a teenager and your parents went out of town for the weekend, two basic ways you can think of that time. One is, well, I hope they come home early and see how great I'm doing. And the other is, boy, I hope they don't come home early and see what I'm doing with this time. How are we living? If we're living in such a way where we say, man, it'd be awesome if Jesus had come back now because I think He'd really approve of what I'm doing. Or, man, i got time. I'll, I'll do that stuff later. Which way are you living? A crown. And if we look at Revelation 3, if you want to just flip over a chapter, it's pretty interesting what it says there. Verse 11. This is to the church in Philadelphia, the missionary sending church, the church that did such an amazing job of populating the world with the gospel. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. Crowns are laid up for us, but we can squander it. I was listening to the ESPN for a little while last night, and Villanova is going to the final game. And it said they'd had two championships, but one was vacated. They'd won it, but it got, it got taken away from them. It's not on the record books anymore. And this is the idea. Our crowns can be laid up and then squandered. Keep going so you don't squander that for which is laid up for you. These crowns, they're amazing opportunities of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And now comes the really hard one. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, we saw that an overcomer is someone who is a victor, someone who wins. And we saw in the church of the Laodiceans that Jesus says, if you overcome as I overcame. So it's really hard to say here that overcomer means become a Christian. Because Jesus did not accept Jesus into his heart. Jesus did not come to salvation through believing. Jesus is God. But Jesus was an overcomer because He overcame temptation and trials. He did all these things we just got through talking about in James. And He was tempted in every way that we're tempted. And Satan tried to get Him to succumb to His desires. Man, you're really hungry, right? Why don't you eat 
your own way rather than wait on God. No, man does not live by bread alone. I'm going to depend on God. It says Jesus lived a life of perfect dependence, even though He was the only person that could live a perfect life of independence. So what do we make of this? This is not easy. Well, I'm going to propose a model that I think explains how this can be. It's just a model. Struggle with it on your own. The second death, which is the lake of fire. Let me show you that first. Look at Revelation 21.8. Revelation 21.8, verse 7 here. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So fire and brimstone is the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. So you could read this and say, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the lake of fire. Now this is very difficult for us because in our paradigm, lake of fire means hell. Hell is a place and it's a place that we've been promised we won't go. So how can you be hurt by some place you would never go? Well, take this into account. It's very possible that the lake of fire is not a place. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at Revelation 20, verse 14. Hell most certainly is a place. But in Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to works. Then verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So death and Hades, Hades being hell, what we think of as hell is actually in the Bible called Hades. It's, it's the place where people go, like the rich man and Lazarus when they're looking over and, and he's in Hades and he's in torment. That's usually what we think of. That's Hades. And Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So this place, this place of Hades actually goes away. And it's in the lake of fire. So then is the lake of fire a place? And, I, and I, I'm going to propose that it's not, that it's a presence. So let me, let me show you where I, how I get to that. And if it's a presence, then I think that opens up some other possibilities for us. And we can have an understanding of this that makes this fairly simple to understand. Look at Daniel chapter 7 real quickly, please. In Daniel chapter 7, something very interesting happens. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And we're going to see a lot of the imagery from Revelation come straight out of Daniel. We're going to be going back to Daniel a lot. So, And his garment was white as snow. We'll see white as snow all through Revelation. His hair of his head was pure like wool, which I'm a fan of. His throne was a fiery flame. His throne was what? A fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. And thousands, thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands, time ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. And I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which with the horn was speaking. This is a horn on a beast. And the, the beast represents Rome. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So here's the beast, the beast of Rome, put in the burning flame coming from the throne of God. 
And if we look at Revelation 19, verse 20, what we'll see is that the beast, that ruler of Rome, is thrown directly into the lake of fire. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those that worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. We also see that our God is what? Look at Hebrews 12.29. Hebrews 12.29. Our God is a consuming fire. And the reference in chapter 12 of Hebrews goes back to Mount Sinai. And it talks about Mount Sinai and says, if God is a consuming fire there, He most certainly is a consuming fire now. Because God, our God is a consuming fire. When the people saw the fire on Mount Sinai, they said, oh, man, we're afraid we're going to die. Don't speak to us anymore. And God said, it's a good thing to be afraid of sinning, but not of dying. Now, death's not that big a deal. Sinning, now that's really scary. Don't sin. That's the point here. Because our God is a consuming fire. And when you see fire in the Bible, often it's just an expression of God Himself. So what I'm going to propose is that when we say these sorcerers and the evil and all that sort of thing is outside the city, Revelation 22.14. Let's go to Revelation 22.14. We see Revelation 22.14. Blessed are those who do His commandments. They may have the right to the tree of life. We saw that in Ephesus. And may enter through the gates of the city. But outside the gates of the city are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. And this is in the New Jerusalem. Or sorry, the New Earth. The New Earth. And outside the New Jerusalem are these sorcerers and liars and stuff. And I ask myself, well, who's that? I thought the New Earth was not going to have any people like that. And here they are outside the city. So the model I'm going to propose to you is that The lake of fire is the presence of God. The holy presence of God. And think about this. What did God tell Moses about seeing his face? I can't do it. Why? You'd die if you saw it. Because you can't live in the presence of my holiness in your current state. And so when we come into the holiness of God, what happens? What happened to John when he saw Jesus? He fell down like a dead man. What happened to Isaiah? The prophet who never spoke anything wrong. He said, man, my lips are dirty. I feel dirty here because he's in the presence of the holiness of God. And here's what I propose this is saying, shall not be hurt by the lake of fire. That the lake of fire is just God's holiness. And when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, and let's end with that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the fire that we are all going to encounter. Verse 9, let's start. We are God's fellow workers, you're God's field, you're God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, Paul speaking. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, what, what, are those, what happens to those when fire hits it? Gets even better, right? It's even pure. Wood, hay, straw. What happens when fire hits wood, hay, straw? It dissipates. Each one's work will become clear for the day, we'll declare it, this judgment day, when works are revealed. Because it will be revealed by fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And if we have works that last, it'll refine. 
And if we have works that don't last, it'll be consumed. If anyone works which he is built on and endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Himself will be saved. Okay, This is not about whether we're accepted or not. This is not where we go. The place we go will be the new earth. The place we will be in as believers will be children of God. The reward we get is dependent on whether we're overcomers. And if we're not overcomers, we'll be saved yet so as through fire. Singed and our whole life shown to be nothing. Or part of our life shown to be nothing. So here's where we come back to. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to go into persecution. It's going to stink. If you will hold on, all of the refining will be done here on earth. I'm going to give you a tremendous reward. And when we get to this judgment seat thing, there's not going to be anything left to burn. There's not going to be any pain for you. Other people who live their life as unto the world, what they're going to do is they're going to get before me and in my holiness, and they're going to watch their whole life go up in smoke. Because they didn't do anything that was lasting. It was all for themselves. And you will not have to go through that pain if you will endure the circumstance I give you now. Okay, well now I'm motivated. Now I get it. I don't want to have my life go up in smoke. I want to live my life in such a way that Jesus says, you know, you endured all the suffering down there for me. It's all past. Now let's go into my presence. You learned what you needed to learn. Let's go to the next phase. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. When you enter my holiness... Instead of suffering loss, you're going to get this incredible gain. Well, what about the unbelievers? Well, our God is a consuming fire. And what His judgment does to us is refine us. And in fact, Jesus says, I chasten those who I love. God's judgment fire consumes the adversaries. That's not going to be a pleasant thing for them. They're going to live a life of being consumed. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like in terms of them being outside the city and we can see them. I I don't know what that is. But we don't have to worry about that. We're not talking about that in the least. Because God's fire doesn't consume us. When God says to the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know what I have in mind for you and it's just good things. What He's telling them is, I've got just good things as they're headed to Babylon. And they're going to be there for 70 years. And He says, hey, build houses. Live there. You're only going to be there 70 years, but live there like you're going to be there indefinitely. I've got good things for you. And half a million people are about to die. Massive pestilence is coming up on their city. And Jesus says, I've got really good things in mind for you. Because He disciplines those who He loves. And He gives us this amazing opportunity to know Him by faith. Now, that's not easy to do, but James tells us if you need wisdom, ask. So let's do that now. God, it's hard to see things the way they are. And we need help seeing wisdom as how difficulty in our life is a blessing to us. How being refined now is a tremendous blessing because it gives us gold, silver, and precious stones. Help us embrace this and see it to the extent that we actually are joyful when we have difficulty. In Jesus' name, amen.